From the Spyscape Podcast Network, this is The Spying Game. Over this season of The Spying Game, Rory Bremner will be joined by a mix of experts in the field of deception and fellow enthusiasts from the world of entertainment as they attempt to sort the Moscow rules from the Hollywood fabrication. Hello and welcome to The Spying Game. I'm Rory Bremner, comedian, mimic, spy enthusiast and professional liar. In my life as a mimic, I've had many identities, mostly for fun, but occasionally seeing if it's possible to fool someone into believing I'm someone else. When you're through and they believe you, the fear of exposure becomes real and you realise you've got to keep going or bail out. For many of my guests on this series, bailing out isn't an option. They're in it for real. For them, exposure would mean the failure of the mission, capture, even death. I want to find out what that's like. Separate real life from the fictional accounts. Find out the people behind the missions. Each week on the show, we're tackling topics including double agents, escape, outfoxing the enemy, and betrayal. This time on The Spying Game, it's... Double Agents in the Middle East. We are all spies. When somebody goes to the office and leaves his wife or his husband and his family at home and goes to work, he puts on a mask. He becomes somebody else. He's not the same person that he is at home. I had a permit from the government, from a sovereign government, to be a criminal. I sit him down in the chair and I start the interview and he starts crying. They never laughed at me again after that. Forget James Bond. James Bond has nothing to do with the real world. In 90 minutes, he solves everything. Spying is mostly waiting. I've been interrogated, I've been shot at. You know, there were shaky moments in this. But it's all gone. You know, they say yesterday is history, tomorrow is mystery. That's why today is called present. So let's enjoy present. Now, if you think of exfiltration missions, you're likely to think of clandestine meetings, forced passports, smuggling agents or captives over the border at night. But today, I'm joined by a man who decided to do things on a much grander scale. Gad Shimron, you had, on the face of it, a relatively simple mission. All you had to do was smuggle thousands of Ethiopian Jews out of refugee camps in Sudan, take them hundreds of miles across a hostile Arab country to the Red Sea coast, where Israeli ships would take them to safety. What could possibly go wrong? Everything. (laughs) You know, the Murphy Law in the 80s, it was the Sudan Law. If anything has to go wrong, it will. Uh, Sudan at the time was the biggest country in Africa. It was a hostile enemy country for Israel. Of course, we couldn't go in with uh, with Israeli passports. The reason we went down to Sudan was because the Ethiopian Jews who were separated from Judaism for thousands of years and who lingered to come to Zion, they couldn't do it from Ethiopia because of the civil war that was going on there at the time. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they crossed the border to Sudan. And from there, they asked to be rescued. The problem was that they ran to an enemy country, and we had to find some kind of a cover story to operate in a hostile country and to smuggle thousands of people to a safe heaven. So nearly 50 years ago, you were recruited. Did you have any ambition to be an agent? Were you interested in the spying game? You know, I'm a great believer in chances in life. I was a student in Jerusalem. One day, somebody knocked on the door of my student's apartment. 
was somebody I knew very vaguely. His wife was from the same neighborhood where I grew up. And he started asking questions. And very soon I understood what he's working for. <laughs> and actually, I was willing to do it because at the same time, it was after the Yom Kippur War, which my generation went through and suffered a lot. I mean, we had many friends killed. We were a little bit disillusioned, so to say. I was a student. I was working in the Israeli radio. And uh, I was looking for any option, you know, and one of the options was going into the foreign office. So I went to ask a friend of my late father, who was one of the chiefs of the foreign office, and said, don't come here. Snakes are walking here in the corridors. If you want to do something for the country, go to the army, go to the Mossad, go to the Shabak, which is the Israeli MI5. And so after a very long process of, uh, you know, we started, I think, 1,500 candidates, which were taken down to 100 candidates. And at the end, we were 15 in the course. And after more than a year of very hard training, at the end of the course, there were more instructors around the table than graduates. <laughs> we were only six who graduated from this course. And that's how I found myself in the Mossad, by chance. Also joining us on this edition of The Spying Game, I'm delighted to welcome a producer, writer and director whose films have earned him two Israeli Academy Awards and the Audience Award at the Sundance Film Festival. He's made documentaries for the likes of Netflix and the BBC with luminaries including Simon Chin and Leonardo DiCaprio. Welcome to Nadav Shearman. Are you feeling left out? Did you want to be a spy, really? No, I think I was, as a kid, I was fascinated by James Bond, by the lifestyle more than anything. And, and I, grew, I grew up all over the world, basically, because my, my father was a diplomat, so he schlepped us around. There was always an international crowd around us, so I guess I was fascinated. And the first film that I made was about an, a Mossad agent called Wolfgang Lotz, mm -hmm. who was, uh, started a horse farm in Cairo and pretended to be a millionaire, a horse breeder. And he was uh, spying on the German scientists there who were developing missiles, but he got addicted to his covered identity as a, as a millionaire. And the most fascinating aspect of that story is, for me was that on the surface, he was a real-life James Bond. He lived a high life, had unlimited expense account. And I wanted to see what it was really like, you know, because he had written a book about his life, as many Mossad agents do afterwards. And he portrayed himself as a real-life James Bond. And I started digging around, and I met his son, actually. And, and through his son, I started getting into what it's really like, you know. What, what, how much do you tell your family? How much do you tell your wife? How much do you tell your friends? And how difficult it is to come back to a normal life, you know, because you're not always James Bond. You're going for a few years back then and coming back. And that fascinated me, you know, the, the, the coming back to real life. He never really did, did he? So he went, he went back to Israel, but the family that he left, he never went back to the family. While on his mission, he married another woman without revealing who he was. And he lived a real double life. So he had, you know, his family's Israeli wife and son waiting for him in Paris and worrying about him while he, you know, would go back to his second wife that he had married. Now, Mossad knew about it and they had to keep it secret, obviously. So it became a whole personal drama. And the approach to that film was through the eyes of the son, because what was extraordinary was they moved to Paris and, and the son didn't know what his father was doing exactly. And he would go on, you know, for extended period of times to, to Egypt. And then one day, the father told the son, listen, I'm a Mossad agent, but you cannot talk about it to anyone because my life depends on it. He wanted his son to be proud of him, you know, and he gave his son a camera, actually, an eight millimeter camera. And the son recorded his father's visits to Paris. So the, the father would come <laughs> to Paris from Cairo 
every six or eight months to report because, you know, that's how you would report back then. Mm -hmm. So the son recorded his father's visit and he showed me the footage, these eight millimeter footage. And for me, what was extraordinary is you could see in the footage how the father was succumbing to his covered identity. Mm -hmm. You know, the first visit there in the park and, and the father is walking together with the mother. The second visit, the father is wearing sunglasses and a hat and he's walking a few steps away. The next visit, the father always has his back turned and, and you feel, you see in the footage that he's not part of that family anymore. That became fascinating. That became, you know, what, what is the personal cost of, of, of being a spy? You spent extensive time working with spies in your career. You must encounter them a lot in your research. What's that relationship like? I mean, do they welcome you or do they, do they run a mile? In your introduction, you said that you were a professional liar. And what's interesting about the spies that I met, spies and terrorists, actually, and, and, and handlers and agents and so on, is that they're all professional liars. But they want to talk. They want to tell their story because they do extraordinary things which are not known. I guess, you know, what is the sound of one hand clapping? You want to be heard. You want to be to be heard of. So they agree to participate in my films. And because they are professional liars, my job is to help them get to, and I'm not interested in the facts. I'm interested in the emotional truth, in the emotional core of their story. So, for example, in The Green Prince, I had to interview a handler and his source. Both of them, their life and livelihoods depended on them being able to lie at the highest level, the most convincing level. And yet I have to get them to tell a real story, a true story. And truth resonates. Mm -hmm. So I'm always going for the emotional core of the story, you know. And a thing that was interesting is that uh, Gonen Benitzchak, who was the handler of The Green Prince, he told me after the first day of interviews, he says, you know, Nadav, this is the first time in my life where I feel like I've been handled. And then you realize that a film director is not so much different than a handler because our role is to get people, actors or protagonists, to connect to the emotional core, to the emotional truth, and to handle them to do things that they would normally not want to do. They say Israel is a very small country, and Nadav, funny enough, Oded, the son of the, um, the spy from Cairo, and I, we went to the same school. We are from the same neighborhood. Wow. And Gonen, the handler of the Green Prince, I also know him. Heavens. So this is Oded, his father, Wolfgang Lotz. He's the champagne spy who poses a German working in Cairo, looking into the the missiles, the missile program of the 60s. He was born Wolfgang Lotz and he emigrated to Israel and changed his name to Zev Gourier. But he wasn't circumcised because his father was not Jewish, right? His mother was an actress, Jewish actress in Berlin. His father was a theater director. Nazis come to power. Father hangs himself. Mother takes him to Palestine at the time, puts him in a boarding school. Everybody's laughing at him because it's the mid-40s and he's blonde, blue-eyed, not circumcised. And they call him a Kraut. They call him a German. And he was miserable. They, nobody trusted him. And lo and behold, like the only way that he could really serve his country was to become that German. How oh, extraordinary. Okay, so Zev Gur Arya, Wolfgang Lotz, he was taken over by the character. He fancied himself as a sort of James Bond. Gad, how do you train somebody to be a spy? You take somebody with two basic uh, characteristics. One, 
you have to be a very honest and truthful man. I mean, this is number one in spying, honesty. Because very often you work alone. And if you do something and you come back and you report something you haven't done, the whole, the whole operation is, is gone, you know? So this is one thing, reliability, point one. Then if you are a reliable person, then they look for other things like the way you improvise, the way you will handle under pressure the way you are able to make contact with somebody. You know, things that actually can be taught. It's not that difficult. I'll give you a, a, very, a very simple example of, of what training was about. Uh, we would go to the central square of Tel Aviv with the instructor, and he would point a veranda in one of the buildings surrounding the square, and he would tell me, okay, you have now 15 minutes to prepare a cover story. I want to see you in 15 minutes standing on this veranda with the owner of the apartment and a glass of water in your hands. <laughs> now, when you think of it, you know, for, for a normal person, sounds like impossible. What are we talking about? Once you are trained, once you understand how people react, you know, it's, it's basic psychology also, you come up with a cover story. In this case, for example, okay, I came to this apartment, I knocked at the door, I said, I am a representative of a production uh, company, and uh, we want to, to, to uh, make a film, and uh, we need a place to put the camera for a wide scope scene of the square. And we want to put the camera on you, Veranda. Of course, we pay for it, you know, because bullshit talks, money works. <laughs> We will come maybe tomorrow with a camera and make a shot, you know, and see. And, oh, by the way, it's very hot today. Uh, may I have a glass of water? And bingo. So, Gad, you were, in a sense, a, a willing recruit. But if we come to your perhaps most celebrated documentary, Nada, The Green Prince, the man who Mossad managed to recruit to infiltrate Hamas had to go against everything he and his family stood for. This was a Palestinian recruited to work for the Israelis, not just any Palestinian either. I mean, tell, tell us about who the Green Prince was. His father was one of the seven founders of Hamas. So he was groomed to be possibly one of the next leaders of Hamas. And he was working for the Israelis. He was brilliantly recruited because one thing that they do really well is to be able to detect what they call, in Hebrew it's called, your scar. Each one of us has a weakness. Each one of us wants something that we cannot get. It's a psychological one. We want to be admired. We want to be loved. We want the love of a father. We want material success. And they are masters at detecting that scar and convincing you that you are doing it for the benefit of your own people. So what was Mossab's scar? Mossab's father was such a powerful figure it was like an oak tree, and nothing grows under an oak tree. So that is one side of it. But humans are multifaceted. You know, during the filming, we uncovered another story which could also have an impact on his decision is that he was sexually abused as a, as a child by an uncle, and he, he didn't feel protected by the family. He didn't feel the, the, the family just swept it aside. It's something that happens often in that society, I guess. And no justice in his eyes was given to that act. And he felt betrayed maybe on a very deep level. So that could have played also a role. But he's an extremely intelligent young man. He grew up in, you know, in, 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 in a fundamentalist 
Muslim world. And, and, and they exposed him to Greek thinkers, to French thinkers, to, to British philosophers, to art, to painting. They gave him a sense that there was a whole world of influence, and they started to influence his thinking. Listen, in his eyes, he wasn't betraying his family. He was doing the right thing. Okay, and of course there's perks. You're working for the empire. You know, you, you can move freely. It gives you power. You, you have money. You know things that other people don't. And he was recruited as a very young man, as a you know, late teenager almost. So it gives you a sense of power also. So all those things, you know, humans are complex. But the Shin Bet is very good at identifying what makes you tick, what you want, and feeding into that. What's striking about the Green Prince as well is is the footage. There's so much security footage and CCTV footage. I mean, this is going around, presumably it's around, around, around Ramallah and, and these places. And I wonder if you are a fan of Fowder. Um, in, and there's, there's a lot of series um, set there. This is a very complicated, dark uh, world. One of the makers of Fauda, Avi Sakharov, was very instrumental actually in the making of The Green Prince because he was a journalist uh, himself and he was a journalist who was covering Palestinian issues for wh whichever uh, media he was working for at the time. And he developed actually a long-standing relationship with the Sheikh, with uh, Sheikh Hassan Youssef, Mossab's father, and with Mossab, which he knew as a helper, as the right-hand man of his father. So he communicated with them while Mossab was an operative, you know, and, and when Mossab came out and broke his story, I think he called Avi. Avi, one of the creators of Fada, was the first one to get a call from Mossab to expose the story. I think just a little, there's a weird coda at the end. So Mossab, he manages to make his way to America and he wants to stay in America. Obviously, he's ostracized by his family, obviously, because it's the worst thing that you can do. And so there he is in America, but the Americans see he has a record for gun running earlier in his past, and they're about to deport him. And what comes back from Shinbet, it's silence. It's almost like he's disowned after all that he's done, betraying his father, if you like. They disowned him. And it was only when Gunnan himself, the handler, intervened and said, look, this man worked for us for 10 years in the most dangerous of circumstances, that things happened behind the scenes. He was given permission to stay because he became a person without, what you say in French, apatride, without a nation, you know? There's people like that who lose their citizenship. You, you're a citizen of no country. Yeah. And, and, and most of that was like that. And when you, when you don't have a passport, when you don't have identity papers, you're very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. and, and he would have been sent back to Palestine, which was a death sentence. Do you feel a responsibility as well after the, as a filmmaker for his safety? Tremendous. Yes. In, in, I, listen, I made a, a three documentary films and all three of them are about spies and terrorists and all three of them have taken their protagonists, you know, 180 degrees and you feel a tremendous responsibility. I mean, luckily with The Green Prince, the film was extremely well received in Israel. Uh, I think it was made compulsory viewing inside the Shin Bet and, 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 and it changed the attitude of the organization towards Mossab and towards Gonen, who Gonen was, you know, persona non grata, and then he, he, he became more accepted. It's very active today, actually, in politics. So the film itself had an impact on their lives. And you're currently working, I know, um, with Roberto Saviano um, on, on a Gaddafi project, and he made a film called The Gomorrah about Naples. And, and when, when I went to meet Roberto for the first time, he was living outside of Italy because there was a death sentence uh, from the from the Comora on him. So so 
he he was living outside and I had to travel across the world to 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 sit and and and, and work with him there's a number of journalists in in Italy also who are uh, being protected by police <laughs> May I say something about the case of the, of the Green Prince? They say that the Israeli intelligence, one of its good sides of the Israeli intelligence, it is its ability to recruit agents, what we call human, human intelligence. Because unlike the Americans, you know, who work like an electronic vacuum cleaner, they <laughs> they drop everything in the world they hear, you know, like, but they say like, like much coin, much care. I mean, very often they don't even have time to, to analyze what their ears all over the world have uh, recorded. And one of mm -hmm. the reasons that uh, human is so important, let's say there is a phone conversation between two Syrian generals and one is telling the other, okay, tomorrow we are going to screw uh, General Hamid. Now, if you get it from recording, you don't know what are they talking about. But if you have a human source, let's say the uh, driver of one of those generals is an Israeli agent, and the Israeli handler comes up to him and asks him, okay, what do they mean when they say, let's go and screw up General Hamid? What are they talking about? And he said, oh, it's nothing about it. It's a poker game tomorrow night, you see? <laughs> so this is a difference. This is the really the clear edge of the Israeli intelligence. It's its ability to, to get the human story behind everything. And I think that the Green Prince is, is a very good example of that. I was amazed, God, you know, I met at a, at a party a couple of years back. I met an American gentleman here in Germany who was uh, working uh, for a private intelligence company, private intelligence firm. And I was like, oh, yeah. Um, and he's like, yeah. And I'm like, how does that work? He's like, well, you know, we, 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 we source out uh, uh, intelligence information that we gather from different sources and we send it back home to be filtered, you know? And I'm like, oh, but you're in Germany. What, what, what sources? Like, oh, we have sources all over the Middle East. I'm like, what sort of sources? How, you know, how do you, and, you know, party, drinking, and the guy's more like an executive, I guess. And he ends up telling me that they are basically paying agents in other security companies across the globe for information, things that they're interested in, that they do as a gig, as a side gig, you know, they get paid. They collect all that information. And this is, seems to be like the most useless information that you can get. You paid for it. It comes from an agent from another country and you send it back home to somebody who has no relationship whatsoever to that source country and cannot interpret it, and it gets put into that, you know, mass. That's why Palantir then came and, I guess, invented their software, and there's probably other softwares out there which are helping them make sense of it. But as you say, without the human aspect, it's senseless. It's just, it seems like a massive waste of taxpayers' money, but hey. You know, they say in Arabic, there's no customs on, 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 on words. You can say whatever you want. I know a very famous anecdote with the uh, former German Chancellor Schmidt, who disliked the, um, he didn't believe in, in intelligence organizations and the BND and the Verfassungsschutz, which is the German uh, MI5, because it's true, at the time, there were, there were been, we are talking about the Cold War, they were doing very badly. And they said that every morning when he had his meeting with the chiefs of the intelligence, he would look at them and say, what can you tell me that I haven't read already in the morning newspapers? <laughs> <laughs> a very famous Russian Soviet uh, spying net during the Second World War. They were in uh, Switzerland, 
And they gathered information from local German newspapers because in those local German newspapers at the time, whenever somebody from uh, the village or the town fell in the, in, in, in the Russian front or somewhere else, there was an announcement in the uh, newspaper that Lynchman family is sadly announcing the death of Lieutenant so-and-so-and-so from 2nd Division uh, who fell on. They gathered all this in about half a year. They managed to map the structure of the whole German army. Sometimes information is there. It's only just to process it, analyze it, and you have great stories. Even today, I think a lot of information in the, in the big intelligence organizations is coming from open sources. I believe 80%, if you ask me. Let's talk about your greatest achievement. You mentioned it earlier on. The secret services are supposed to operate on a small scale in the background underground, but your story famously features showing the only example of an actual holiday resort being opened by the security services. And we could do a whole episode on this. In fact, you have in our sister podcast, True Spies, talked about this. But this is what uh, the early 1980s, you had this tribe of Ethiopian Jews, they're fleeing civil war, famine and persecution in Ethiopia. And now thousands of them are trapped in refugee camps in Sudan. How did you come to hear about them? There was a very courageous uh, Ethiopian Jew by the name of Ferede. He fled from Ethiopia to Khartoum. And from Khartoum, he managed to send an SOS uh, postcard, actually, to Europe. And from Europe, it was conveyed to Jerusalem. And then the uh, prime minister, Menachem Begin, the new prime minister, we are talking about the elections of 77, he called the chief of the Mossad and told him, look, we got an SOS cry from Jews in Africa. Bring me the Jews of Ethiopia. And uh, therefore, they started a whole operation. I'm not going into details because for this we need a whole night. But at the end, the guy who was sent down, Danny Limor, is a very courageous guy. He located an abundant Italian diving resort on the Red Sea, about 40 kilometers north of the main harbor of Sudan, Port Sudan. Uh, it was abandoned because it was impossible to run. Mm -hmm. There was no running water, no electricity, no, 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 no road leading to it. And uh, he uh, just started uh, handling with the Sudanese government. And we, uh, in a way, we leased it for $300,000 with the big promise of putting Sudan on the map of international diving adventures. And as I said before, you know, bullshit talks, money works. Uh, <laughs> it helped. And it was a perfect cover story because it enabled us to move around Sudan. And Sudan at the time was a third world country. There was one road leading from Khartoum, one road in the whole country. There was one paved road from Khartoum leading to the Red Sea, something like, like 800 miles long. No gasoline station, no garage, no hotels, nothing. But anyhow, we had this cover story and slowly we built it up as a cover story. And after a while, it started making money, <laughs> which is a big problem for an intelligence organization. I mean, all the cover stories in the history of the Mossad lost money by tradition. They lose money. And this one started making money because it became the hot spot for expats in Sudan to be in, you know. It was wonderful. I've, I've seen the brochure. I mean, this was 
just a perfect cover because you could drive trucks around because you'd be delivering equipment and you had you had the boats as well and you could take them out to ships in the Red Sea once you'd taken them to the coast and take them back to Israel. I mean, it's genius. It was Danny Limor, that's his name. He he really, he, he deserves all credit for that. Uh, it was a great idea and it worked very well. And by the way, not only marine operations after a while because we had a shoot up with the police and the, and the army and some of us were arrested. We moved to aerial operations and which is was really a Israeli chutzpah. We landed in the middle of the desert. We landed um, Israeli Air Force cargo planes, direct flights from the desert to Israel. There were times, one night, we were the busiest airport in Sudan because we landed three uh, Israeli Air Force planes, one after the other, in the middle of the desert. <laughs> I've done many operations in my life, and I must admit, most of them I don't remember any, anymore. It's like a, one big mushroom soup. But in this operation, I remember every minute of it because really it was a unique operation in the, in the history of intelligence organizations. There's a rule in the Mossad. It says no target is impossible to get. What you need is good intelligence, resources, and good documentations. And then you can get almost everything. You were interrogated, weren't you, at one stage? And the, the mission was at, at risk. And you came up with a story about reading a, a book about birds? <laughs> you know, improvisation. There's a saying in Hebrew, and I'll say it in Hebrew for Nadav, I've del ben tzalash letarash. The difference between getting a medal and being demoted to private. Uh, I had a lot of luck. I've been, I, it's true, we were stopped on the way to, 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 to the, because of some blunder from headquarters, they gave us the wrong orders and the wrong marching orders and we arrested. And um, I've, ta I've been taken for uh, interrogation and I was lucky, first of all, because they didn't know that I speak Arabic. And the two interrogators were consulting uh, between themselves what to ask me. And uh, I knew already what question is coming up. Second of all, of course, I played the European idiot. What am I doing here? I mean, I, I'm, I'm working for the Sudanese government. I'm, I'm building a diving holiday resort. Why, why, why are you asking me these questions? I also had a very good cover story. And uh, after a few hours of interrogation, by the way, I wasn't tortured or anything. It was a very professional um, interrogation, which was instructed how to handle such interrogations, I must say. Uh, I, knew, I knew what interrogation is. And after a few hours of interrogation, you know, when they ran out of questions, they asked me, why did you come to Sudan? What do you have to, to do here? And I said, ah, and then came up like this, Pack, a book I've read a few years ago, written by a Sudanese author called The Migration Time to the North. And uh, I told him, I read this book, and he asked me, do you know the name of the author? And I said, I think something, Salah, Salah something. I said, my cousin. <laughs> this was the end of the interrogation. Okay, it was the end of the interrogation. Now, this is, this is a sheer point of luck. Napoleon, there's a story that, that his generals were very, very unhappy with one of his generals promoted to marshal, and they said he's an idiot, he has nothing but luck. He said, I love lucky generals. So there we are, you see, this is the spies maker. Patience, total honesty, improvisation, and luck. That's the big thing, isn't it? Nadav, you, you see these people all the time and, and you um, incorporate them into, into your stories. I mean, do you find sort of common characteristics? Yes. Actually, I do. First of all, being an, a handler, 
which is a very specific form of agent, is very similar to being a film director, as we spoke about this. It's about finding the weakness or finding the, the, the need, the psychological need of the subject and, and, and playing on that and getting them to do things and pushing them to a corner. And you're getting them to do things, you're, you're ultimately giving them what they want. When you work with an actor, the actor wants to be successful as an actor, but in order to do so, they have to expose themselves. They have to maybe go to very uncomfortable aspects of their personality, but that is, funnily enough, or ironically, is going to get them what they want, you know? So as a director, yes, my job is to create an environment which allows for happy accidents, Okay, so uh, luck. So, 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 so God speaks about luck. It's not luck. It's, it's, it's the whole creation, the whole creation of him as an operative prepared him for that moment. So, so, so he's not lucky. He's prepared and he was able to pull that thing. It's almost mystical. You know, that one thing happened to be the cousin of the guy who interrogated him. And in cinema, it was Orson Welles who said, you know, our job as directors is to create, to orchestrate Happy accidents. Mm -hmm. One thing which I find extraordinary about Mossad and which separates it from all other intelligence agencies is their ability to do mise-en-scene. Mise-en-scene is to, how do you say, to, to make believe, to direct. They, they make movies. They, they create an, a reality which is bigger than Hollywood sets and Hollywood movies. And so, you know, God has the story of, 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 of the Red Sea Diving Resort. There's many other stories where they, just for the sake sometimes of recruiting a person, they build a police station or they build, you know, things and, 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 and everybody becomes an actor and it's like making cinema. I have a theory why spying is so popular with the general public. I think you can find it in the first, in the opening of the Old Testament, you know, when God created um, sky and earth, etc. And then at the end of this sentence said, and there shall be light, right? The spying world is in the dark, in the darkness. And I think this is one of the reasons why people like spying, because they take a nerd like me and after a year make him to a thief. I had a permit from the government, from a sovereign government to be a criminal on its behalf. And this is one of the reasons why spying is so popular, one reason. And Sen, I must tell you something about intelligence communities in the world. I, I've, I've struck a very um, friendly relationship with Markus Wolf. He was the chief of the East German Foreign Intelligence Service. They say that John le Carré's Carla type is based on uh, Markus Wolf. He penetrated West Germany like a Swiss cheese. I met him later in the 90s when I was a journalist in Germany and we struck a very interesting relationship. And he told me once, he said, you know, Gadiline, it's my firm belief if they take today all the organizations, the intelligence organizations in the world, and they cut the budget but 80% and fire 80% of the agents, the result would be the same. Actually, there's a lot to do about nothing. In a way, they are um, building a fire and making it bigger and bigger and bigger by themselves. And if you look into history, how many stories there are of perfect intelligence given to the decision makers who've done nothing with it. My belief, that's what he said, I quote him, cut them by 80% and nobody will see the difference. I disagree, but there is a point. You've got to know which 80% to cut. 
<laughs> if you cut the Americans by 80%, you're still in the trillions, you know? That American budget is it's 600 billion defense budget. That's unbelievable. But you know what's crazy? After 9-11, they were so shocked that they threw money at it and they created 112 different agencies whose job was to gather information and you know funnel that information back but they're all competing with each other and they're not sharing the information so then came all the software plugins etc cetera, etc cetera. but what a waste we did a documentary about the time of the iraq war and i think we worked out that if you'd spent 26 million dollars every day since the birth of christ you'd still have spent less than the Americans had since the end of the Second World War. Yeah. It's just phenomenal. I know mercenaries who made a fortune in Iraq just delivering Coke cans to the American troops. Yeah. Five dollars a can. Have you ever been in fear of your life? Rory, if I would have told you how many times I have shown clear a pair of heels, you know, making a run. That's the other thing. We put honesty, improvising, and now ability to run fast. Of course, anybody going into this profession who tells you who he was not afraid, he's lying. And I think also uh, somebody who is fearless is very dangerous to himself and to the organization. Yes. You should be afraid, but you should be able to control your feeling. This is a difference, I think, between a professional and non-professional. So what was the closest that you came? Oh, I've been interrogated. I've been shot at. I've been running through roofs, you know, because the guardsmen came at the wrong time. You know, there were shaky moments in this, but it's all gone. You know, they say, they say, they say, yesterday is history, tomorrow is mystery. That's why today is called present. So let's enjoy present. <laughs> we talked about the discipline that you need to keep those lives apart. There's another book that you wrote about the hangman of Riga. Well, tell us a little bit about it. It was a Nazi war criminal, wasn't he, Herbert Kokos, who had fled to Brazil. And Yitzhak's job was to go to Brazil and find him and kill him. Yeah, his real name is Yaakov Meidad. At the time you wrote the book, still we had to, you know, to cover his real name, but today we can tell it because yeah, because he passed away uh, 6 years ago at his funeral, the former chief of the Mossad, Efraim Alevi said that this guy Yaakov Meidad, Mio was his nickname, held the unofficial record of the false identities of the Mossad. <laughs> he had over 160 different cover stories in his long career. Goodness. <laughs> Among other things, he was a member of the uh, of the team that kidnapped Eichmann in 1960 from Argentina. He was also there, and this guy was simply it was really I mean he 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 looked the opposite of James Bond. He was short. He had a small belly. He used to pass his uh, his fingers over his bald head and his belly and said, "This is my cover story." <laughs> And um, the truth is that he was, in 1964, he was given the mission of getting close to Herbert Sukus, who was a Latvian a Nazi criminal, unlike Eichmann, who was a desk criminal, you know. I mean, Eichmann didn't kill anybody during the war. He gave the orders to kill millions of people. This guy, Tsukus, by his own hands, he killed over 30,000 Jews of Riga in 1941. He was a local SS man. And he ran away after the war to Brazil. He didn't hide his identity, by the way. And the reason that uh, it was decided to, to, to go after him, and here I'm going to break a myth. There is a myth that Israel was running after Nazi uh, criminals. It's not true. 
There were no resources. The Mossad at the time was very small. There were more urgent missions to do. So uh, there's not one single Nazi except Tsukus who had an untimely uh, death uh, by the Mossad. He's the only case. It was decided to go after him because at the time in Europe, we are talking about 1964-65, 20 years after the end of the Second World War, they were talking in in Europe of uh, making an end to all the uh, persecution of Nazis. And in Israel, it was decided, no, we should make some kind of an uproar. So this deal will not come through. How do you decide, Nadav, whether to go documentary or whether to make it a feature film, a movie? So the real life stories are always much stronger than fiction. So if I were to tell you that an unhappy television presenter heir of a real estate Mm -hmm. empire with the help of a KGB uh, becomes the president (laughs) of the United States, you know, 15 years ago, you would have said, get out of here. Listen, on my first film, The Champagne Spy, he wrote a fictional account of his life the way he saw himself. And he got me. I wanted to make a, a fictional mm-hmm. movie about himself. And only when I met Oded, his son, and when Oded told me his version of the story, and I started understanding the complexities, that it came alive. And that was a documentary, no doubt. And for me, documentary or fiction, they're the same. It's storytelling. We're, we're storytellers, right? Or podcast or whatever. We're storytellers. So what is the best way to tell the story? What is the story that I want to tell on a very deep emotional level? And what is the best way to tell the story? Is the best way to tell the story using the real character? Are they still alive? You know, I, I, I mean, Vartuz Bashir, he did an extraordinary job telling his own story using animation. So documentary is a very plastic art. You can use so many different things. You can use interviews and real life footage and dance and animation. And you can do so many things. You're free. It's freedom. Fiction is much more restrictive, right? And, 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 and it's made for a different kind of audience, if you want. So it's really, what is the story that I want to tell? And, 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 and what is the best way to tell it? The number one rule is don't be boring. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, you, you're making a film for an audience. You have to, you know, I, I didn't really go to film school. So Billy Wilder was my film school, which was grab them by the throat <laughs> and never let yeah. go and then let them do one and one and they love you forever. And that's it. And don't be boring. So listen, as I said, you know, facts can be embellished and facts don't really matter in my films as much as the emotional truth. And truth, emotional truth resonates, right? So did he go here? Did he go there? Did this happen before this? Who cares? What really matters is the emotional journey of the protagonist. And and the protagonist in my documentary films really undergo emotional journeys. So that is true. That is real. Mm -hmm. And... The story, does it resonate beyond just the story of the film? So The Green Prince is the story of best of enemies, you know, is two people who decide to go against their own systems. Gonen went against the Shin Bet, Musab went against the Hamas, and they, they became dependent on each other. They became, it was a story of a relationship. So it's a bigger story than just the spy story, right? So The Champagne Spy is a story about a father and a son, and that resonates way beyond you know god was saying you know why are people fascinated with spy stories and he was saying it's because of the darkness i think that what's fascinating about spy stories is the ability to become somebody else 
and we are all spies. When, 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 when somebody goes to the office and leaves his wife or his husband and his family at home and goes to work, he puts on a mask. He becomes somebody else. He's not the same person that he is at home. So he's, in effect, playing another role. And that's why we love it, because we love to be other people. We want to be other people. We want to portray ourselves in different ways. And I think that's why we're fascinated with spies. Gad, do you watch a lot of this stuff? Do you watch a lot of spy fiction or, or documentaries? And do you sort of sit and watch some of them and go, this is just not believable? Well, you mentioned Fauda before, uh, this Israeli uh, TV series. There was also an American uh, series called The Americans. But in general, you know, uh, Hollywood has the right to take a story and make a film out of it. There are very, very few books and movies which are getting close to the real thing. I think John Le Carré, he really portrayed the uh, intelligence inner world the way it is almost true. Well, Red Sea Diving Resort, I mean, you've had you've had a film about your own, about you, about what you did. I mean, that was, have you seen that one? I can tell you that it was shown to a group, there were about 20 members of the team, and we were given a special show of the movie when it came out, and at the end we we booed it, you know, we didn't like it, because, not because, I mean, I mean, I mean, the producer and then the director have the, the right, of course, to make a movie out of it, but what really made us uh, unhappy is the fact that they downgraded the heroism of the Ethiopian Jews, mm. who we, being there, we really knew they are the real heroes and not the, the, the Mossad people and the Air Force people. And Nadav, have you ever had a film where the, the preview audience booed? No, I, I, I had the opposite effect. Uh, I mean, I was really surprised when I did my first film, The Champagne Spy, which was ultimately, you know, is the story of Wolfgang Lotz and the story of the family, but it was ultimately about what lies beneath, about what is the personal cost of espionage, you know, how much you tell. And I and, and we were invited to show the film in a closed uh, room and, you know, maybe God was there. And But the audience of about 400 people were all intelligence operatives and their spouses. And after that, I was sitting on a panel with, you know, a former uh, operative who had been captured and, and, and had to come back to normal life. There was a, a Mossad psychologist or an intelligence branch psychologist who was talking about all these things. And they used the film as a trigger in that forum to discuss these things. And, and that's why I felt really privileged when we came back from filming The Champagne Spy, and, and, and it was the first film that I'd ever done, and, and, and I was approaching it, you know, on a very instinctive level because I wanted to tell the story, and my crew were laughing at me because I was all the time, you know, reading how to make a documentary film as I was making the, 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 the movie, you know, and they were laughing at me, but I approached it very instinctively, and, and you know, and, and to connect to, to, to one of God's earlier anecdotes, I <laughs> wanted to rent the apartment where he lived in Paris when he was spying. Find that apartment rent it whatever it takes kick the people out I want to put a camera there and they did they found it and we brought Oded back the son of the spy 40 years later and, and I said don't tell him anything just drop him at the end of the street you know from the airport drop him there let's see what happens and we were there with the camera in the apartment where he lived as a kid and you see him coming out of the taxi and, and you recognize the street where you lived as a kid and you start walking like a ghost towards that apartment where the whole story happened. And he goes up the stairs and he's so full of emotions. And I sit him down in the chair and I start the interview and he starts crying. They never laughed at me again after that, the crew. So I, I didn't plan it. It just, you, you, you do it. It's instinctive, you know, and, 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 and you do, you create the circumstance for people to tell their story. 
brilliant. We have to wrap up. I could talk forever, but your next projects, the Nadab German Moon? Well, there's a few things. I think Cargo is coming up. There's, there's, a, there's a fictional uh, series based on, on, on one aspect of the Champagne Spy in the works. There's uh, Gaddafi, which we're excited about. You know, there's a few German Moon also in the works. There's a few projects. Gad, what's next for you? Well, I wrote a book based on a true story, a German Waffenist air soldier who after the Second World War looked around, decided the best place to hide away is in Palestine among the Jews. Uh, he took up a Jewish name and came up to, to Palestine, to Israel as an illegal Im immigrant, and he fought in the War of Independence, was a very good soldier, became an officer in the Israeli army. Uh, Yaakov Meidad, the guy who went to Brazil, to get up the Nazis, was his commander in the Israeli army. It's called DNA Gorali in Hebrew, which in English will be a fatal DNA. It's a great name. I took the real story. And you've just given me the rights. I took yeah? the real story and I made a, a, a fiction story out of it. Fascinating. Because the funny thing is he, he came back, he was kicked out of the army because of improper conduct and he went back to Europe and he came back to Israel as an Egyptian and Iraqi uh, spy under a third identity. It's, it's, it's an unbelievable story. I can't tell you, Gad, how fast Nadav is writing all this stuff. So, look, here's what happened. This is We've introduced you now. We've got the, the documentary maker and we've got the former operative who has got so many stories to tell. I think you guys would just put you together. You keep making the films and just give us a share of the royalties. But it's been a joy. Thank you so, so much. I, I look forward to your new films, uh, Nadav, of course. And, and Gad, you're going to be writing for the rest of your days. I don't know if I put you back into spy territory Where's, where's the biggest threat at the moment, would you say? Is it China? Is it Russia? Where's the next one coming from? Space. Well, <laughs> do you know, Nadav's already got there <laughs> with the German scientists working on NASA. How do they send Mossad agents to space? Like Mossad agents trying to infiltrate alien societies. That is the... They're there already, <laughs> Nadav. You know, don't blow their cover, for heaven's sake. It's, it takes a lot of work to get into those Martian suits. Next time on Spyscapes The Spying Game, Rory is joined by former US Secret Service Special Agent and Medal of Valor recipient Evie Pomporis and the Line of Duty and Bodyguard creator Jed Mercurio. The number one thing to being a good reader is to stop thinking about yourself and really look at the human being across from you. And they're going to show you everything. And that's how you figure out motives, values, what they think, what they feel. And the best part the number one thing I tell people is, shut up and let people talk. I didn't know the tower was going to fall. Who would have thought that, you know, back then? But, like, when you're in it and you see your fellow human beings dying, how can you leave? Did you send the first episode of Line of Duty to the Met? Yeah, that didn't go well. <laughs> because in, in the opening sequence, an innocent man is, is, is shot in a counter-terrorism operation. They were saying that was not something that they would do. I don't want to rely on anybody to take care of me. I take care of me. I guess rather than going in being like, oh, I'm the only woman, I was like, yeah, I'm the only woman. The Spying Game is available now wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen to episodes a week early ad free by subscribing to Spyscape Plus on Apple Podcasts. Do you have what it takes to be a true spy? Now you can put your spy skills to the test with Spy Games. Spy Games is the thrilling new experience at Spyscape in New York. Test your strategy, 
agility and teamwork in high-tech game rooms developed with experts from CIA and Special Ops to stretch your physical and mental agility. Inspired by the CIA's operational training at the farm, Spy Games will help you develop strengths you didn't know you had. Think true spies in real life. Find out more at spygames.com.